Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm your host, Rob McLeod. On this episode, how the value of ambition impacted a school education. A map isn't the territory, but a decent map can help you navigate the territory. This episode is a map of how school got to where it is. This map shows where school and society meet. It shows the contour line between them and how it's changed over time. A change can ripple across society. Values, the economy, and social norms can alter. When they do, it's like a kaleidoscope. Each piece bumps into the other and changes what they look like altogether. Values, the economy, and social norms altered one another as we moved from feudalism to free market capitalism. From the value of self-discipline to the value of ambition, and from compliance to strategic achievement. These changes impacted school education. So let's review what we've been talking about. A school education does three things. It's for occupational preparation, the development of citizenship, and the development of the individual. The students are taught information or skills, but how this is carried out is determined by values. Values inform what we believe is important in life, so therefore values inform what we think we should be doing. The four distinct values currently active in education are self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development. That was self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development. These four values have emerged in that order historically. Self-discipline-centered schooling came first. Self-discipline-centered schooling arose with the first-ever compulsory national school systems in Prussia. The Prussian model of compulsory national school systems then spread worldwide, carrying with it the self-discipline-centered approach. These schools served to inculcate self-discipline. Self-discipline, which instilled the compliance required for industrial or military labor at the time. But the world for which this approach to education was tailored for was changing. Feudalism as a system was on its way out. Free market capitalism as a system was on its way in. There was a new system in town, but we attempted to download and run the old software on it. At first, the feudalist values of compliance to authority were embedded into the emerging free market economy. But eventually, those feudalist values were shown to not be the best fit for this new system. The new system of free market capitalism was giving way to a new kind of value, the value of ambition, which installed itself in the system. Ambition and merit serve the market more than compliance. The rigid authority structures of feudalism were still embedded in how early factories and markets functioned. As the degree of complexity in the markets grew, it required a change in values that would be better suited to its nature. So, we saw the emergence and influence of stock markets, banking regulations, making capital more accessible to people of all classes. These, along with about a million other factors, helped meritocracy to take root. Meritocracy being the holding of power by people selected according to merit. More and more, there is a shift towards the notion that it should be your merits, your results, your ability, and your accomplishments that earn your place in the economy. 
your place in society should not be due to the authority or status of your lineage. From birthright to ability. Ability becomes a mechanism for sorting who gets a certain role in society. This requires filters to do the sorting and assigning of roles. To do this, we measure merit. This makes the system a game, a competition. The competition isn't only on the level of the individual. The opening and expansion of the free market led to increased competition between businesses. Higher quality and or lower costs were rewarded. The most competitive win the most often. This change of market required a shift in values, a shift from self-discipline and compliance towards ambition and strategic achievement. On the personal, cultural, and societal levels, we began a shift away from self-discipline and compliance towards being competitive, striving for excellence and progress, being success and results-oriented, strategizing to become better, bigger, and needing to win, focused on results, growth, and efficiency, and playing the game. Regs to riches was now possible. The entrepreneurial mindset emerges. You could transcend the limits of where you started in society. Conversely, it was possible to lose where you started if you lacked the ability to maintain or advance yourself. The individual could make something of themselves and move upward within the social and economic hierarchy. No longer did tradition, birthright, and political influence solely dictate your place. It began to be that your ambition and achievements had a role to play. The previous rigid pyramid of authority became a ladder. A ladder that you could climb if you have the ambition and strategy to do so. With meritocracy, the quantifying of things expands. You can improve your merits with results. You can prove your merit with results. The measuring of results matters, though how you got those results is often secondary. The type of commerce we were engaging in changed and grew towards more complexity, both across businesses and organizations, but also within them. Over a few hundred years, we see the emergence of sales departments, service firms, senior management positions, advanced education as a prerequisite, multinational corporations, targets, objectives, the workplace becomes about outperforming competitors. It's no longer a stable, static entity. There is a serious competition, and you might be replaced if another serves needs better than you. We switch from complying with established protocols to meet the requirements of authority to the person with the most expertise leading via strategic planning and tangible incentives. The incentive used to be the avoidance of punishment. Now the incentives were personal perks or rewards for your performance. If these motivated you, you could reap the rewards. No beginning, no end. Instead, we have a smear. But there wasn't a clear break. Factories didn't just go away. The military didn't go away. Self-discipline's impact on society, citizenry, and the development of the individual wasn't overtaken and choked out like some sort of delicate flower 
succumbing to the appearance of a new invasive species of lily pad. Ambition didn't arrive on the scene and eradicate the influence of self-discipline. Those valuing self-discipline and compliance to authority didn't go away. They stuck around, and we still have both in 2018. It's the landscape that got more complex. Self-discipline and ambition had to share the turf. Both values influence different portions of commerce. Both values influence social life. Both values influence how an individual approaches their own life. Both values began to influence what a school education looked like in order to inform this new portion of society. At times, they began to feud with one another. School education began to develop some new characteristics that distinguished itself from the self-discipline-centric school. No longer was just being there enough. No longer were you primarily filtered towards industrial or military work. Instead, the value of ambition began to inform what a school education looked like by measuring and tracking student progress. We developed standards to measure students' performance. Within the discipline-centric school system, the teacher was there to deliver the curriculum, but their main role was to be a disciplinarian. Within the ambition-centric school system, a teacher's role becomes teaching the information and skills from the curriculum, but then measuring the student's level of achievement through assessments, tests, activities, worksheets, etc. Previously, it was the student's role to comply to the authority of the teacher. Now the student's role is to engage with what is being taught and demonstrate their ability their level of achievement by all means necessary. Checking and verifying becomes important. The act of measurement and quantifying is paramount. Do well in school, and you'll do well in the world. That's the story. The membrane between school and society complexifies here. School is now the filter for positions in the workforce. School creates more filters within itself, tracks in primary, secondary, which lead to work or additional training college or university. All schools develop a similar approach to this streaming all across the world. Almost everyone starts with all the students together, but somewhere along the way, advanced and general level students are separated and filtered off into different paths of school. These paths lead to different next steps in your school career. And these next steps lead to different opportunities in the job market. It is your marks, your measurements, that lead to the closing or opening of certain doors. Once filtered, it is incredibly difficult to go back and be re-filtered. Getting good marks is the way to get the most advantageous next stage of schooling, which gets you access to the best possible jobs. Pass the hurdle to get to the next hurdle. You keep going within school until you exit and enter the workforce. Put the time in now and you'll do better later. Your satisfaction might be delayed, but that better spot in society is on its way if you're willing to pass the tests. It is your marks that matter most. Prior to the 1890s, very few report cards can be found in national-wide compulsory schooling. Being there was enough. Now, being there was no longer enough under the guise of ambition. 
Now being there was no longer enough under the watchful eyes of the ambition value. You must get good marks on the tasks you are given if you are to do well in the system, both the school system and the economic system. It is the final score that we use to filter where students go and not how they got to the marks. We value the quantifiable outcome of whatever you did. This is where students, teachers, school boards, and even entire countries begin to search for loopholes to win the game. Standardized tests emerge to compare school boards with each other, states with one another, and eventually countries with each other. By the 1990s and 2000s, many countries around the world developed national curriculums. Prior to this, different states, provinces, or counties might have their own curriculum. This is a disaster for comparing results because it can be apples and oranges from region to region within the same country. A national curriculum attempts to assure that every child, no matter where they live in the country, whether in the downtown of the largest city or around a lake in the most rural region in the rural parts, those kids will receive the same information and skills. The classroom in an ambition-centered school system looks very different to the Prussian one-room schoolhouse. Each grade is often given their own classroom so that lessons relate directly to their own age group. Gone is the room with 5-year-olds in the front rows and 14-year-olds in the back. Desks and chairs aren't bolted to the ground. Table groupings and classroom layout may change, depending on the activities. It isn't very common to see authority figures on the walls you're more likely to see posters or charts which reinforce ideas that are being taught in class. Student work may be up on the walls, showing off achievement and a job well done. The environment may look more colorful and child-friendly. There is likely still blackboards and a teacher at the front, but it is intended that the teacher is working to serve the child's achievement. There are tests. Your grade is often written on the front and sent home for your parents to know about. There are report cards. Teachers meet with parents, and often on relatively friendly terms, to discuss a student's progress and what they could work on to achieve even more. Guidance counselors may be present in secondary schools. There might be gifted classes and special ed classes. There might be regular reading, writing, speaking, listening, or math assessments to track your progress over the year. There is often a sense of competition within a class to see who the smartest kids are. There are often incentive or reward systems for good behavior. Gone are the threats or physical punishment from the teacher for bad behavior. Instead, good behavior is rewarded, often with external rewards like stickers, treats, or special events. Students' opinions, student voice, and contributions begin to take more of the spotlight regarding their assignments and task work. Some work may involve reciting a rote learning still, but there is often a shift towards more open-ended questions or problem-solving. School becomes more about how well you can do and being supported to do so. This all sounds familiar. Ambition-centered school is what most of us commonly think of as being, well, school. It is difficult for many of us to see that school, as we think of it, is most often just a manifestation of the ambition value calling the shots regarding what a school education should look like. 
But it's easy to overlook how much self-discipline-centered schooling still influences what a school education looks like. In most public education systems, we've just painted a veneer of ambition onto the scenery of self-discipline. Self-discipline and ambition-centered schools are not like oil and water. Their overlap can be difficult to tease apart at times. Many from my parents' generation, who were fully immersed in the ambition-centered system, complete with grading, standardized tests, and filters for higher education, still share stories of the remaining influences of the self-discipline-centric education. Physical punishment was still allowed in most modern countries until the late 1970s and early 1980s. Drills, repetition, and rote learning made up a large portion of what they were graded on and filtered by. Ambition took the self-discipline model and reimagined it with a new desired outcome. Don't instill obedience to the group and authority. Instill ambition for personal achievement and getting ahead in life, and doing so strategically. The better you do in school, the better you will do in the economy and society, and therefore, the better you will do in life. And to be fair, this was relatively true for a period of time. However, after a while, a good education didn't guarantee an equally good job. We saw that what it takes to get good marks wasn't necessarily the same as what it took to conduct oneself in the world. We see school smarts versus street smarts. We saw that for some, good marks required hard work, and for others, they were just a given. Some individuals have natural abilities or backgrounds that put them at an incredible advantage in the system, while others are disadvantaged considerably by the challenges or their background. Although they are given a chance equally to participate in the game, the deck is rigged against some students. The accountability of tracking student achievement leads to the bending and often breaking of the rules of the game. It becomes about the achievement, the outcome, not the path to get there. Often we teach to a test and reduce the quality of the school experience for a child and justify it for a successful outcome. Individuals who lack ambition for the games of school, but who have incredible talents not taken into account by a school education, are either quickly filtered out and disadvantaged, or in some rare situations, drop out and succeed far more than those who played the school game. However, for those less lucky, they are often denied the chance to participate in certain parts of the workforce due to a lack of specific school education. The entire ambition-centered approach to education, with its assessing of achievement, centers around our belief that we can quantify performance and achievement. However, the quality of the assessments is often suspect in my opinion. Often they do a poor job of measuring what they claim to do, or at times, fail to do what they say they're doing at all. Ambition-centered school brought forth the notion of quantifying student achievement and student learning in service of filtering students through different paths in school towards a workforce with a growing variety of occupations. Alrighty, welcome to the listeners who are still with us in the second half of this educational endeavor. So Brendan and I 
have noticed that uh, listeners could start a drinking game and have a sip every time we say the words podcast or in a future episode. So we've set the personal challenge to not utter that P word more than once each. And I've already blown my card for this episode. Yeah. Because of course, same podcast more than once within the podcast will. All right. You've broken it. All right. Let's move on. So into things, ambition game. Yeah. So, um, once again, thanks for kind of setting that up. I think you did a really good job of concisely putting forward the objective nature of a, a school uh, system that's run on ambition. And, um, Obviously, th- that's a big change. It's the first kind of major change within the school system. The school system under the Prussian model emerged from a hierarchical, feudal mindset, even though society at that time was no longer feudal. It was already very, um, it was already very heavily um, influenced by market capitalism and by the time you got to the 1700s um, so just to recap very briefly a a, um, self-disciplined citizen um, as part of a static industrial military style workforce hierarchical directions and um, very heavily um, uh, on the obedience or compliance side of um, discipline and um, self-regulation. Yeah, so I think this is where this idea then of ambition becoming part of school is tied in very heavily to the rise of, say, corporations and the maturation of um, capitalism as it entered the 20th century particularly, um, but has its roots way back to uh, the beginnings of democracy in, say, ancient Greece. So these, these idea of ambition, or what we will talk about as enlightenment values, are by no means new in society, but they were not the dominant force by any means until very recently. Within education. Even within society, but education is has been slower on the uptake than society as a whole has. And I think that's generally the case um, anyway. And I'm sure we'll talk about that much more about how uh, education does react to society, but it's very um, incremental and um, really slow because I think, I mean, the obvious uh, reason is that the people running the schools are of a generation or two generations um, older than the students. And so it just, it does take 30, 40 years for those changes to kind of um, work their way back into the system. Yeah, might often, not be the reason, but. I've often heard the analogy used that public education is very similar to like a cruise ship. Like you can bring a lot of people along board a cruise ship, but it takes a very long time to change course yeah. with such a large ship. And fingers crossed there's no icebergs in the way. Fingers crossed. That would be tragic. Fingers crossed. That would be tragic. Um, 
So I think though what we're seeing here as we get into um, the 20th century and post Second World War, particularly right up to the current day, is that um, tipping point in society, which happened at some point in the 19th century with capitalism really taking a strong hold on uh, society as a whole, really becoming um, evident in school. But I think it's kind of worth setting up a little bit this, the um, societal context of um, where capitalism kind of came from or this idea of ambition as a core value in society. And I think it does come to the idea of enlightenment values. Um, yeah, and a shift back towards the individual. Yeah, in terms of the spiral dynamics um, kind of narrative or, or, or take on this, you see a move away from a social-centered uh, self-discipline or blue as it's often referred to in that system and then moving more to an ambition or um, that's one of the values anyway in spiral dynamics. We've chosen that as the value within school but in terms of this shift, it's not the only value. So one of the big things that developed out of the growth of capitalism was this idea of a laissez-faire economics, which is, uh, uh, you know, government had grown for hundreds of years and, and become more and more uh, powerful and had more and more say over people's lives. And, you know, people such as Adam Smith with the, with the wealth of nations and things like that were arguing strongly for a completely unregulated um, free market with the argument that that is what would um, be the strongest for society. And that value will shift into um, education during the 20th century. Um, yeah. I mean, I won't turn this into a, a lecture or anything like that. I'm just trying to give a flavor of this. But at the core of that free market capitalist approach was the idea of meritocracy. You mentioned changing from a pyramid, a hierarchical pyramid. You have your place, and it's really hard to get out of that. This idea of it becoming a ladder, the metaphor for society changing from a pyramid to a ladder, um, is, is really key because it brings in the idea of social mobility, um, meritocracy, which if you have any knowledge of school in the 20th century or into the 21st century, that is a very, very core dominant idea. And I think that's worth unpacking right there. The idea of what are, what are the merits? What are we valuing within school? Because yeah. right now it, it kind of seems like school is real life light in this capitalist ambition system. And the worst outcome is maybe you get a few bad grades and that sets you back and doesn't allow you into the, most optimal 
filter that could take you to the yeah. next stage of school. Yeah. But you're not going to lose your house. You're not going to experience financial penalties as a student within a school system that you might in the real world. And it's kind of like schools setting up for this idea of do the best you can because the best you do in this grade or in this portion of your schooling, you have the gates open to you to the next best possible level. Yeah, I, I will get, I do want to get into this a little bit more when we talk about school as a filtration system for the current capitalist kind of dominated society. Um, and I think that's true. And I think it comes into this kind of issue we have of high stakes testing that are not really high stakes that are almost like fake high stakes. We've had to introduce some drama into the system to make it uh, more of a competition and uh, they don't necessarily uh, it's not necessarily working. It's not necessarily testing the right things in the right way. And uh, if you do win the the testing game, you don't necessarily get the best um, results. Uh, don't talk about that a little bit more about um, whether that whether the testing kind of system works as a as a, um, assessment, but just bearing in mind that before this switch to a ambition value there was no testing in the sense that it was competitive as you said in the last episode it was a case of just you turn up every day for school you you sit up straight and you uh, do the best you can and um, you hope you don't get punished for it and then you come out the other end of the system having done it box checked and i think that changes a lot when ambition becomes the core value but you you did say that what is the positive side so again just going back to society the positive side of this ambition or enlightenment values is that you they are saying that freedom liberty tolerance the idea of democracy separation of church and state basically everything that the United States is built on their, their constitution is, is essentially a declaration of the rights of man. It is a, it is a very enlightenment um, set of ideas. Um, and this idea of the free market and that you can get material gains. Now you don't have to think about that too long to, to, to say, well, hold on. The United States in the 1930s or 1850s was not a particularly tolerant, free, or or, or liberal state. And um, Britain in the 1800s was far from uh, egalitarian and uh, just, tolerant society. But these are ideals. These are what the the value is based on. These are the healthy side of that enlightenment um, uh, set of ideas. There's a shadow, there's a darker side, but the idea was that there are problems in society that can be overcome with greater freedom and, and tolerance and democracy is a good way to do it. So it's worth setting out that, that the ambitions in many ways were set out in a very positive way. 
And so the same ideas within school, that a school based on um, this ambition does not have to be negative. It can be a very positive thing. And, I, you know, we will aim to argue both cases there, even though we both have pretty strong criticisms of the way an ambition school system uh, exists in certain uh, contexts. This seems like it just takes forever to set out the, the, the groundwork of to set the map for this, because by and large, we're just talking about Western and most Eastern societies and cultures as they are right now. I'm noticing the, the challenges, sort of the, the slow reveal of setting the, the table for what we want to talk about here, because mm. we almost have to address every single thing from the way society is structured to the way culture is structured to the way economics are structured to what the values and actions of the individual are. Yeah. I, I almost want to zoom back to the, the specifics of this and then maybe unwind out towards the complexity of what I think we're trying to set up right now. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that idea was just to, I guess, um, deal Give with the bigger many- picture. Well, more more to deal with when I do speak to a lot of people about these things, it's like, oh, hold on. We're not even acknowledging that we're coming from two different societies or two different values within society. And it's important to say that a hierarchical self-disciplined society over the course of a few hundred years will produce a different education system than one that is based on ambition. And I think you really need that hammered home or, or really clear in in our heads before we can attempt to say well how are they different because i think um it's it's often the case that we have political affiliations or ideological kind of um, mindsets that don't necessarily fit in with the idea of systems being led by a value and it's like, well, are they uh, are they conservative? Are they uh, liberal? Are they uh, like more um, politically left wing, right wing? Um, and of course, these values do um, do kind of match up to some degree with those kind of ideas. Um, are they? Uh, is it communist, socialist? Is it Marxist? Is it capitalist? They kind of match up in some way, but it's kind of saying that they're not really about that. Underneath it, there's a value driving it. So it could be that it looks like a conservative society or a system, but actually maybe it's being driven by an ambition um, value rather than by a self-discipline value. And so that's the idea of having the two schools almost next to each other. And you're saying, well, one, one of them is markedly different from the other. They're from the same time with the same system and so on. What's the difference? And you look at it and maybe it is that one school is running far more on an ambition uh, value one's much more um, self-disciplined one maybe more on the sensitivity value that will come in the next one so yeah without zooming out or in too far i think hopefully that we can move on now with that kind of setup to say that's where society was 
the 20th century capitalism was was uh, taken a very very strong hold across the whole of society and that started drip feeding very very slowly into education and i really even in 2018 we're still seeing that uh, growing that influence increasing within society and within school particularly so i think for me at least i'm ready to move back move into the um the details of the school system. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that's what we're trying to do with this ongoing discussion is attempt to shift the conversation into a new framework. The way we're talking about education doesn't really work, in my opinion, unless you get to this level of talking about the values. Because as you say, we shift to other frameworks such as a political spectrum of, oh, well, this is the more conservative approach to education. This is the more liberal. When actually both sides of those political spectrums can be influenced by these values. Hmm. So at the core, it's these values that inspire action and it can inspire very different looking actions. But if you trace them back to the core, there's these what we're arguing for underlying values. And I think if we can shift the nature of the conversation about education to these four values, it's potentially far more functional when people who are in their value camp and value echo chambers and value communities, we can begin to talk across tribal lines and value lines with each other in a more functional way when we point this out to say, oh, this is, the, this is actually the team you're on and that's fine, that's cool. Just notice that at the end of the day, there are going to be some fundamental things that we disagree on and it's for these value reasons, not necessarily political or social or other reasons. At their core, there's these underlying values that are pulling so many strings in education, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about symptoms of them much further down the line rather than these as root causes. Yeah, the argument you're making is that the, keeping that discussion open and being, uh, you know, being aware of whichever value you are kind of representing in your your speech and actions will just help us to communicate more. You, we won't get off into the weeds too much, but I know you had a, the election in Ontario and your, your, your good friend, Rob Ford was elected. Doug you Ford. know, Rob Ford's dead, rest in peace. Sorry, but Doug Ford was elected. I'm not getting off too far, but you said one thing you noticed that your friends from whatever end of the political spectrum who embodied these three different or four different values, let's say three, the sensitivity, the self-discipline, the ambition, um, didn't really want to speak to each other. No. There was a lot of shutting down of discussion at that point. And maybe that's because of a, a big reaction to, uh, to a political event that, that was surprising and not welcomed in many quarters but also just the idea of, okay, we're shutting down this discussion now. All of us are shutting back the discussion down and going back into our groups of friends who share the same value. And you're arguing for keeping that open and uh, speaking in words that we can all uh, understand and appreciate. Um, I just want to drop in that um, 
capitalism has its drawbacks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the you know, Machiavellian blood diamonds, subprime mortgages leading to global collapse, neoliberal climates of fear, the potential extinction of all life on earth. Um, so it's not all good. Um, so I think we, we kind of need to, um, to put both sides here uh, of the discussion. So, all right. So we moved in education towards an ambition uh, set of values. Um, this has kind of been an, an uneasy negotiation between self-discipline school and um, ambition school. And even the sensitivity that we can't really ignore because it comes in very early anyway. But the, the self-discipline versus the ambition school, I mean, if you speak to people who say, uh, who, who highlight any problems in education, their solution is often a self-discipline solution. Mm-hmm. Almost always. Okay, well, let's get more discipline. Let's, uh, let's tighten things up in terms of behavior. Can't ignore nor that it's clearly important, but it's obviously clearly not the only solution to the majority of problems in school. Um, so I wanted to come first to this idea of school as a filtration system, because that's kind of a, I mean, it's something you brought up to me. I think, did you come up with this idea yourself or did you, read of it somewhere i'm certainly not the only person who's ever thought of school as the filter but i used to use the term school is our social cultural incubator that yeah it's kind of a continuum of you enter at three four five six seven years of age you do eight to twelve years of time within this incubator and then you leave into society and how you did in the incubator influences where you leave school and enter the workforce. And then you became cynical. Then I became changed cynical. Changed it from an incubator to a filter. To literally a filter. Well, you've drawn this out for me, and I think it was fantastic that every country that I'm aware of has some kind of filtration system in its schooling, in its public schooling. And it either happens earlier, like you and I, we've been in Germany, and essentially the first filter happens in grade four when the kids are nine or 10 years old. And essentially in Germany, to give just a Coles Notes version on this, at the age of nine or 10, it's decided if a kid's on the university track or not. And that coming from North America seemed rather sudden, but you know, within North America, our system typically happens around somewhere around grade eight, grade nine, grade 10, 11. We do that filtering a little bit later on, but essentially once you get on the track to typically what looks like either university, college, or the trades, once you're on that track, it's pretty difficult to jump up tracks. And that's with the privileged assumption that university is the best possible way College is your next best. And typically there's a bias that the trades is, is your third option. If you can't hack it in school, if you can't hack it in class, maybe university is not your thing. College might be more your thing. And if college isn't your thing, then the trades would 
be your best bet to leave school and enter the workforce? Well, I think that it's worth acknowledging that in society, that is generally the narrative. There's an argument against it, and people are uh, often will make the case that it's not um, the level of your academic achievement that dictates your place in society, and and then that's the the best. Um, but traditionally, that has been the story. The more education you get, the higher your level of what uh, Bourdieu would call academic capital, which is the amount of certificates you have essentially qualifications that guarantees you more money and there's some evidence to suggest that as well of course it gets you more money and therefore within the ambition um, paradigm that's got, that's basically um, what success is um, which can be viewed as a somewhat unfeeling kind of interpretation of success that, I mean, where's the, where's the space for personal happiness in that? It's just assumed that the higher you get up the scale, that you'll be happier. But there's, from my understanding, absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever. I've seen reports that will say there's a certain level of money that you need to be comfortable. And then it, there is a kind of a diminishing return as you get further up the pay scale. Um, that's, uh, that's not my area of expertise at all. And so I can't really speak too much on that, but that is kind of the, the narrative that society is, is, is following right now. And there's almost like, I can't believe I'm going to use these words, but like a historical balancing of karma where the benefits and that, um, opportunity or more access towards the goods, the resources, the riches, that was just not possible in a feudal system. If you were born a peasant farmer, there's essentially no rags to riches story of you worked your way up and became king one day like that. Well, there are, but they're fairy tales, aren't they? And, yeah. Like that, that wasn't a, a common narrative or a societal story. Whereas over time, this shift came to well, if you work hard enough and hop on the right opportunities and you're in the right time, right place, you have access to riches way beyond where you started in this game. Well, that's the meritocracy idea, and that's the idea of social mobility. So obviously with things that as far back as the Magna Carta, we, we, the, the power began to transfer away from kings and into rich people's hands, and there's been a one narrative at least that power or at least uh, the legislative aspects of democracy and power and um, uh, fairness and justice has eventually little by little moved out to encompass more and more people. Uh, we're still having that discussion. We're still having a set of problems related to that, of, of course, but you know, it's impossible to see 2018 through the eyes of a feudal system it clearly is no longer that and we're in this capitalist kind of meritocracy this is the the story or as in as i've described it in one of my songs the myth of the meritocracy again not my idea but um that's something we'll get into a little bit more i think as we talk about whether or not this system works so 
a big change in Britain came post-Second World War or, or just before the end of the Second World War where we decided to introduce a streaming between two main types of schools, grammar schools and secondary modern. So this, uh, in the 50s, 60s, and, uh, uh, was, the, was how the system worked. At 11 years old, you took a test. If you passed it, you would go off into the grammar school and you were on track to then take O-levels, which were the first real qualifications that we had uh, nationally in Britain. And then a smaller number of people would pass through that, take A-levels, and then the, an even smaller number would go on to university degree. And a tiny number would go on to master's degrees and PhDs. Uh, so I had some numbers here. So it, by the 1960s, uh, sorry, by 1922, so really was talking pre-ambition value in school. You had 9,000 people nationally taking a degree level qualification. By 2010, 330,000 people annually taking a degree level qualification. So just those numbers alone show you uh, the massive increase in higher education, the massive increase of people that are moving through this system and taking qualifications. And uh, of course, it becomes an arms race. If there's only 9,000 of you with a degree, uh, society's changed and, and, and the nature of work has changed somewhat. But um, suddenly, if you're, if you're hundreds of times more um, likely to get a degree, then that's going to... Uh, mean that you need a master's degree, a PhD, and so on to get jobs that you would have got 50 years ago with far less academic capital. And I think that's a critical point, that as this filtering system really took root, took root it, it did work as a pyramid in the sense of each level of schooling tapered off that there were fewer and fewer and fewer spots and that those top degrees, the PhDs, the masters, even the bachelor's degrees, it was a small group of people who were lucky enough to get in. And if you're one of those people who showed your merit, you did well, you got the marks to enter, you, you jumped over the high bar of access to this. Yeah. You were, you were a commodity. You were valuable. That degree was really worth something. And you had access to, in theory, these fairly high-level jobs. And that seemed to be the way things got going. I just want to go back to what you said about this idea of the arms race. Of course, what happens over time is, as a society, we go, oh, wow, you get the best spots in society if you get those highest things. And the bar just kept slowly drifting up where then more people were getting those bachelor degrees, which pushed the nudge up to say, okay, well now actually to get those better jobs, the bachelor isn't enough because there's way more of you guys out there now. So actually now the, the next bar is, well, you need a master's now to get what you used to be able to get with the degree. And then sure. that keeps nudging up and pushing up until eventually there's an oversaturation of the educational market and there's too many people with each of these degrees, which means they become less valuable over time, which I would argue is the situation we're in in most Western countries right now where 
a degree that used to guarantee you something doesn't guarantee that for you because there's so many more people reaching that higher level of, of the filter than there used to be. You're worrying now in 2018, your grandkids are going to love this <laughs> when they have to get a triple PhD to, to, to work at McDonald's. Come on. What's wrong with it? You don't like the free market of education? No, I mean, that's the shadow of, of capitalism in one sense, isn't it? That's the, the shadow of the ambition that it, um, it does inspire and motivate, but it also means that you have to compete. You know, what began as the enlightenment idea of the um, social contract kind of idea, let's work together for the, for the good of all, potentially, um, can also become a dog-eat-dog dog fight to the top of the pile. Um, and again, we can't avoid this sensitivity value that is going to start emerging stronger and stronger in the um, not long after these, the value of ambition comes into school. You know, I would pinpoint it somewhere around the 40s, 50s, where it began to become a thing. And by the 60s, 70s, the sensitivity um, value that we'll talk about in the next episode uh, comes in pretty strong as a counter to this kind of um, potentially unfeeling um, high stakes competition. Um, and I, I think at this point we need to get into some more of the explicit nature of connecting. What does this ambition system look like in the day to day? This is, I think a difficult conversation to have because as I already mentioned, this is to a large degree, just what we define school as doing tasks, getting marked on it, your marks being seen as the evidence of your merit, which influences where you get to go next in the filter. Yeah. At its core, that's what this ambition level of schooling is. And the story is, if you want to do well, you can do well with enough ambition regardless of your competencies or lack of with enough ambition. And if you want to get the best spots in society, if you want the best spots in school and you want those best marks, you can do it with ambition. And what's to me interesting is self-discipline can go a long way to help that. You can co-opt self-discipline to enhance your achievement but as I've definitely seen as a teacher over the last decade or so in classrooms, self-discipline isn't an, a necessary requirement for achievement and ambition. It can go a long way to help, but it's not a prerequisite. And I can use a story of a buddy of mine who <laughs> in a, a very competitive university engineering program, arguably one of the most competitive, completely lacked self-discipline, attended zero classes in a semester, read the textbook once or twice in preparation for a test, aced the test, got the highest mark across the entire university, got all the spoils of benefits and awards that came with that, uh, you know, 
bursaries, all these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and just had the ambition to get the highest mark and pulled that yeah. off without he, putting the work into it. That's no, the hacking he, of the system. That's one extreme. That's, that's a hacking the, of the system. Definitely. The idea here that you pointed on is that it's about qualification. It's about scoring those points. And in some cases, by any means necessary, your, your friend hacked the system. But let's talk about this a little bit now. If you set up society, if you set up school to be a game where you score points, you are also setting up a high-stakes system where finding any advantage is important even if it's a dishonest advantage. Your, your friend did nothing dishonest. He just aced the system because it was set up for people like him to walk through it. Fantastic. If you are a value-led person uh, of ambition, sorry, an ambition uh, values-led person, you will be like, well, yeah, he won. He won the game best uh, or great to him the nagging feeling in the back of your head is like, what's he going to be like when he turns up in work? Is he going to be the guy that you want to trust with your, your finances or your, to look after your kids or whatever it's like, or to engineer your bridge? It's like, yeah, maybe, hope so. But um, whatever he goes off and decides he's going to take a three-week break in the middle of building your house or whatever. So the self-discipline nagging doubt doesn't go away. It's, but it's like, okay, so one of the criticisms with, of the new Labour government under Tony Blair in, in the, the 90s was that it set up society, especially um, the National Health Service and schools, to become a game. And it, once you get a game and you put... Uh, statistical expectations on people, which was done in Britain, who would come into the school and they would say, this child should get this score in this test. This was the local education authority. When the children take the standardized tests at the end of year six, grade five, 11 years old, this child should get this score. And they would give you two scores. They would give you the one that was kind of acceptable. And then they would give you an aspirational one and they would be like, okay, these are the two scores that we're looking for. We're going to add up the statistics across the school. If you don't make these, um, you as a teacher, the school as a whole will suffer consequences. Um, you won't get your pay rise as, as a, up the pay scale because you're not doing your job properly because we're measuring it entirely based on um, these scores. And, and school, let's just pause there because that, yeah, that's a that's critical a point. Because not only are we talking about the meritocracy, not only is ambition being um, pushed onto children as a value they need to exhibit to do well in the system, yeah. this doesn't only rest at the student level, this also exists on the teacher level and to varying degrees and arguably, uh, I think in Britain and you know, a few other places, it's gone to its extreme of, as you say, individual teacher salaries, I'd say most countries, school funding is largely tied to school results and standardized tests. Absolutely. I, I definitely know, personally, principals and heads of schools um, who essentially are just told, well, your job's on the line. If your school doesn't achieve certain 
numbers oh, yeah. we're shipping you out to somewhere else or not even guaranteeing you a contract next year within the board well, that, we're not even going to guarantee way. a move the Canadian system set up where the, the teachers are employed by the local educational authority, but in England you're employed by the school. So if, if Ofsted, the government inspectors, come in and your school does not is is basically uh, called um, special measures or requirement to improve, in many cases the head will be uh, fired very, very soon afterwards. There's very few that get the chance to turn the school around if they've been there a few years. And the inspections happen every three years or so. Been there and you haven't turned it around, it, mostly in terms of um, test scores, but they do, of course, look at child safety and, and the ethos of the school. Uh, but but um, you will, in many cases, lose your job as the head. And that's so the important part is you, ha you as the individual, whether the head of school, the teacher, or the kid, you have to care about marks. This yeah. whole system does not work if you don't value the marks. And I've seen this with teachers and also heads of schools who say, you know what, I actually don't care what the numbers are. And I get that there are consequences for that, but I do not see these numbers as a valid indicator of our worth as a school, our worth as people, our a child's worth as a human being, as a student within this. But there is an absolute faith required for this that those numbers that appear after a standardized test or whatever has been done, those are an objective measure, an objective fact. And yeah. we will have to do... I think unpack a little bit now all the reasons why that's not the case. Actually, let's just jump to that. You introduced me to this idea of the McNamara fallacy. Maybe you can just give a little bit of context. I, I'd like okay. to dive into that here. So this was introduced to me when I first started my teacher training, a guy called Peter Fletcher. I introduced him to the podcast. Hope he's listening. If he is, uh, great, because fantastic guy. The first day I turned up for teacher training, I could see that he was going to approach this in a way that um, acknowledged the reality, but also spoke about the ways that education could be. And so the McNamara fallacy, let me just pull it, pull it up because I've got it here in my notes. I've got it here. So uh, Go ahead then, read it for us. The first step is to measure what can be easily measured. So the first step is to measure what can be easily measured. Yeah. And this is okay as far as it goes. But the second step is to disregard that which can't be easily measured or to give it an arbitrary quantitative value. So the second step is to disregard that which can be easily measured or to just give it an arbitrary quantitative value. And you and I could talk for a day just about how that carries out in the marking of student writing. We will get uh, back to um, assessment in this episode, but assessment is going to be huge in the, in the episodes coming up. Yeah, sure. All right. So this disregarding of that which can't be easily measured or if it's given an arbitrary quantitative value, that's artificial and misleading. This third step is to presume that what can't be measured easily really isn't important. 
So the third step, presume that what can't be easily measured really isn't important. That's just considered blindness. And then the fourth step is to say that what can't be easily measured really doesn't exist. So that which can't be easily measured really doesn't exist. So to quickly walk through this again, first step, to measure whatever can be measured easily, measure it. Second, disregard that which can't be easily measured or just assign it an arbitrary quantitative value. Next, third step, presume that what can't be measured easily really isn't important. And the fourth step to say that that which can't be easily measured really doesn't exist. And that reflects how this ambition-centered school structures itself. Because if what ultimately matters are final test results and numbers from either high-stakes testing or standardized testing or just even a unit test that a child writes at the end of a unit, we want to have full faith in that number that shows up because that's what this entire house of cards is built on that yeah. we believe that number is of ultimate objective truth and importance and that requires us at least through a path of least resistance that requires us to only measure that which can be easily measured and by and large that means we only measure very close closed-ended questioning we only measure multiple choice. We only measure true and false. We only measure that which can be easily repeated and written down. Well, we reduce our assessments. We reduce our measurements to the things that are easy to measure or the things that seem the most important that we can measure fairly easily. Um, and I just a, simply throw the yeah. question to say at that first step or at that second step of disregarding that which can't be easily measured. Yeah. I just have to ask what, <laughs> what is discarded in that step? Because well, a human life <laughs> is largely made up of things that aren't easily quantifiable. It's a, it's an oversimplifying of the nature of the world with an assumption that everything can be known and everything, everything that we can test is what is needed to be known. Everything we can easily test is everything that's needed to be known. Yeah, a couple of things. One, the idea of assessment is new to this ambition value system. You, you did have qualifications before. There were tests before, of course, but they were not necessarily competitive and you did not necessarily gain, well, let me say it a different way. There were, there were tests that would, would put you in a hierarchy, but they were not tests that were allowing you access to a market. So the more points you got, the more you could gain materially. What you're doing there is, we said the three goals of school are citizenship, occupational, preparation, and self-development. Um, what this has potentially done is put that occupational preparation front and center to such a degree that the other two goals of school are way off in the distance and they're only even looked at if they are seen to be stopping you from passing the test that will get you um, the, the, the best job. 
the, the, the best you can be, you know, it's, it's said in many, many ways, but the way most schools talk about being the best or achieving your potential is very heavily biased towards uh, a work related argument. And of course it is, you need money to survive. Of course you do. We're arguing for the balance and how it should be. There's an irony in the way we test and teach as well, because time and time again, you read articles or hear business leaders who say university students or new employees lack the collaboration, the teamwork, the critical thinking, the problem solving, the research skills that are absolutely vital in 2018. And so that highlights that possibly the testing and teaching is not actually fit for purpose. And the, um, the other thing being this idea of faith. We're, we're 40, 50 years into this idea of tracking and testing students. There should be pretty strong empirical evidence that these, these specific tests match exactly what is needed as you go up um, through the school system and into education to give you a broad and then specialist set of skills that you need. But just speak to anybody. You say, okay, it's your first day at work, forget everything you learned in school, now you're at work and we're gonna teach you on the job. It's a, it's a truism. People say it's not, you can't forget everything, of course. A lot of what I learned in teacher training was really useful. But of course, it only set me up so far. And um, so I think this idea of having, um, having faith in it when we're being told that it's not particularly fit for purpose highlights this idea even more that aren't we just doubling down on the filtration idea that it's just about let's filter people as efficiently as possible. Um, and then it's kind of up to you if you get filtered into the the, into a place that's not suitable for you, we'll give you a second chance. You go to night school, you can take equivalency tests. You know, it, the government recognizes that they want people with these high level skills. So we're kind of like counteracting it. And we spoke about it as well. I think your entrance to university. Um, yeah. Oh, really briefly, I got filtered in my last year of high school. So when I was finishing high school, there was these OAC credits, uh, Ontario academic credits, and you needed six of them to enter university. And they could be in different disciplines. So they could be OAC credits in math or English or biology, chemistry, whatever. And it just so happened the year I was leaving high school, I had am the ambition to go to university at first. And that year, four of the six I wanted to take got cut after I had already registered for them. I had registered for my six OAC credits, told that that's what I was going to be doing the following September. And then somewhere around the, the end of the previous school year, there was all these education cuts came in and four of the six I needed to take to get to university were actually cut and taken away from, from uh, the possibility, from my possibility of taking them. And then essentially I just said like, to my guidance counselor, like, okay, well, can I sign up for another four credits for next year? And I was like, oh, well, you can't because you don't have the prerequisites for those. 
you'll need to go back and start doing grade 11 courses that you didn't do so that you can do the grade 12 course you didn't do so that then you can apply. So for the OAC, meaning I would add an extra three years <laughs> to my high schooling just to have access to these OACs. Anyways, long story short, the door to university was closed to me. I could not apply to universities in Ontario with two Ontario academic credits. So I pursued a year at a private school for horticulture and I just waited an extra year until I was 20. And then ironically, I could apply to a university as a mature student and with a few entrance courses, get access to university and I managed to re-filter myself into the system. But other than waiting, there was no other option for me than going back through the schooling to get to university. I mean, that's a, an unusual story, but it's a perfect example of the ridiculous nature of, of, a, of a system that's a filtration system that doesn't even really believe in itself. Because if the system believed that it was filtering people to the right level of education and, and assigning or only allowing you to move to the next level education if you proved that you were ready for it, um, you shouldn't, in theory, be able to just walk away and without any extra real study or, you know, obviously, I fail my exams, I'm just not good enough or I wasn't self-disciplined enough even. Go back, I restudy again the next year. That's very different. You were literally just like, oh, now you're old enough, you can just come in through this side door. It's a loophole. And I think this whole system is is built on uh, loopholes and... Um, and ways to game the system for better or worse. Um, and I think, again, you kind of uh, lucked out just like your buddy did, but the teacher who is feeling the crunch of those test scores and thinking, hey, maybe I teach to the test a little more. Maybe I bring my kids in for extra cramming sessions. Maybe we do after to school lessons and then slippery slope maybe i just kind of like feed them a few answers maybe i find ways to influence what they write on the test things like that i mean it does lead itself open to people exploiting the system negatively and then we're in the ridiculous situation of, of a teacher cheating <laughs> which happens and I read news reports of teachers getting caught and getting fired, rightly so. Of course, it's inflating scores in a, in a way that doesn't represent reality. Um, but but it, the system kind of sets it up for that. And um, actually looking at the water we're swimming in and saying, really, is this really the healthiest system where we want to shift the responsibility so heavily onto the heads of one particular person that they feel the only recourse to um, surviving the system is to, is to cheat. Well, I think, and there's a distinction there because if we use the term student achievement, mm. it seems that that term student achievement has carte blanche with people in, in that the, the saying student achievement, student achievement is morally good. Yes. I've heard nobody come out against student <laughs> achievement, except yeah. for perhaps 
where you and I are going to go next with this. Oh yeah. When, when someone, us. when someone in a room says we're doing this to encourage student achievement, we're, we're doing all these things for student achievement. That's seen as a morally worthwhile endeavor. Getting better sure. marks is seen as a good thing because students with better marks are going to have better opportunities in better parts of the filter and therefore in better parts of society. So why would you not want a kid to do as well as they possibly could? Who's arguing could? for lowering standards? That was... Um, well, not even, not even lowering standards. Like I get the kind of joke behind that, but like I literally mean, why would you be okay with a kid not doing well in school? Like, don't you know what's going to happen to a kid who doesn't do well in school? It is your yeah, moral objective as a teacher to ensure that a kid is getting the highest marks that they possibly can because you are serving that kid, not only now because they'll do well in the test and whatever, but yeah. you are failing this child down the road if they're not doing well. Because if they miss the bar to the next best filter in school yeah. because of their year with you, like, dude, you've screwed over this child. And I understand that as a meta framework, but yeah. all of that is built on a faith that student numbers are worth the paper they're written on, which ultimately I no longer have that faith. I've, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've started to walk away from that. It, it's, it's a complicated issue because it's hard to argue against the statistics that show that the level of parent education relates directly to their earnings and to the academic achievement of their child. I mean, I don't have a, 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 the evidence to hand, but, but that seems to be a pretty strong uh, narrative and belief. Um, uh, it seems to be empirically proven. So the thing then comes down to whether it's fit for purpose. Is it actually, are what we're teaching and testing and giving those marks for matching reality as in are they honest reflections are not inflated so you know obviously cramming for a test will slightly inflate and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't see a massive drop-off after that but we do see that in britain the real um argument you hear from from the first year of uh, secondary school so that's um uh, year seven 12 years old is that the kids need to redo a lot of what they would have expected because they'd spent most of the little previous year cramming for a single set of tests. And then in May, the tests finish, and then they basically <laughs> take the foot off the gas for five or six months until they come back in September, and they are then... There's, there's a big, big dip that's talked about a lot. That is entirely due to the cramming for the SATs in... in year five, uh, year six, sorry. Yeah, there's, there's a tricky divide in there because of course we want kids to do the best they possibly can. We want kids to do the best they possibly can to access their best possible future or at least even just the widest range of best possibilities for them. Of course we want that, but, there, but we somehow want that free of tampering. We want that free of corruption. We kind of want that free of gamifying the system. 
we're kind of doing this dance between saying, yes, this is totally up to the individual and what ambition they have and the achievement level that they can pursue and, and what they want. If you want it, you can access it if you have enough ambition and enough work or enough skills or enough practice, whatever. And at the same time, this elephant in the room of, we can also get you there with some tampering. Mm. Even if you don't quite have it, I, I, I can help you with the test to get you the higher score. And there's this the tampering is a, is a, is a loaded term because that's all the way from giving extra feedback or extra help to one particular child or suggesting they get uh, tutoring or bringing the groups in after school all the way up to, I'm literally going to change the answers on your test so that you get a better score. <laughs> that's, that's the, the range of, of that kind of intervention by teachers. We're obviously arguing for the healthy side of extra support, and that's actually where the next value of sensitivity starts to come in because this idea of differentiation, we're all over the place today, so I'm kind of grasping at when to introduce these ideas, but I do want to talk about the idea of once you make it into a competition, some people will automatically be ahead of the game and some will be behind the game. And it's how you deal with that. The ambition system, as it was viewed in, say, Britain in the 50s, 60s, up to the 70s, dealt with it by essentially saying, you failed. You failed at this system if you don't pass the 11 plus exam and go to grammar school, if you don't get all levels. You're... I wasn't there. So it's very dangerous to kind of say what the society was suggesting at the time this is my parents generation but there's a very strong uh, still today idea in society that you have failed at this system and so on this, your own merit you have failed on your own merit you're not good enough and you are and there's a an element of shame in there there's an element of you can't write well you can't read well you're not good at uh, the basic maths you you know this i can't write anything because my spelling is so bad or my grammar is so bad that kind of argument i hear from that generation of say working class people who are now maybe in the 60s 50s 60s um or even people my age uh, 40s and above and i think that's something i kind of want to talk about a little bit that we will talk about more of the idea of differentiation the the ambition system was happy to separate kids into streams, but didn't really deal with the fact of the emotional impact or the, the pressure that, that it puts you under if you are streamed or in a heavily competitive kind of place. And we hear it. That's a big part of the narrative today. I think it's important to talk about. We want to wrap this up in probably 10 minutes, I think, from what we said. But again, in the media and just day to day, you see pressure. You see pressure on students and there is an emotional cost to this competitive system. So I just want to get your take on that. Yeah. 
without saying too much right now, because this, this is where the conversation goes to next is. Yeah, but I think it's important to acknowledge the, 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 the emotional costs yeah. currently and historically of this ambition led system. Yeah. So one of the costs of the ambition level system is the oppressive nature of it that same with the self-discipline school, but kids didn't have a choice in this. You are put in the system, whether you want to play the ambition game or not, you are playing it. You're in school. There are definitely options for homeschooling or unschooling or being taken out of the system. That's fine. But even to a large degree, you're still going to have to pass certain tests in most countries. Or if you're a country like Germany, you are not allowed to be homeschooled or out of the system. You are forced to be in this. And there are oppressive natures to this system of, I just go back to this idea of your starting point in this ambition game. There are certain kids who, well, Let's just say there is a huge plethora of reasons and factors that influence your starting point. Everything from your own capabilities as an individual, your cognitive capacities, your tendencies towards strengths in certain areas and weaknesses in others, that has a huge impact on how you are going to perform in this game. Let alone, Let alone cultural influences of either family backgrounds and family experience with school and or just your cultures. You know, if you switch countries, the culture between different school systems can be dramatically different and impact how well you can achieve. Are you, even trying, our- to, are you trying to get me to say things here, McLeod? <laughs> and you're, on, you're firing me up. And on a relational level, like let's also just address the teacher piece in this. Um, a kid's relationship with an individual teacher can have a huge impact on their level of achievement, both positive and negative. Sure. This might seem like an outlier, but a kid who's a teacher's pet might end up achieving a little better unintentionally than the kid who just grates the kid and the teacher who just butt heads constantly. That might be a factor. It's a fact. It's It's in there. Societal, economic, like so many things come into where you start in the ambition game. I want to just acknowledge something on it. On the level that oppression in 2018 is a very loaded word. Within the the narrative in society right now, we do have this um, kind of conflict between a millennial mindset, which actually matches very well with the next sensitivity kind of value that we're going to go in and more of a a old school or conservative or one you want to call it value of anytime an oppressive um, act is highlighted it's potentially shut down with a claim of oh boohoo snowflake deal with it Um, and I think that shuts down the conversation because the ambition system was set up on enlightenment values of justice, tolerance, freedom. The shadow of it being that even though it has those values, possibly it doesn't necessarily uh, take into account the emotional aspect of it. 
And so you can set up a highly efficient and highly even self-disciplined system where people move through school on ambition levels and on achievement. But there's a lot of pain inside that system. Um, and that's worth acknowledging. And what you're saying is absolutely true as well, that on a legal level, maybe there isn't that much legal discrimination or oppression happening. The ambition system and the nature of the democratic system does work to kind of on a legal level remove um, legislative oppression. So um, gender pay in terms of the same pay for the same work, um, racial segregation, these are all in theory. Um, they have been abolished legally. However, that's only part of the story, of course. So we still have the daily interactions of people and the society as a whole and its narratives that do have levels of oppression in a child born in a low-income family or in an area of social deprivation statistically is proven to not be in um, a successful within this system. Just had a great episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast um, that talks about trying to uh, give opportunities to people, um, to children from really deprived backgrounds, children that are in incur and in, in places where gangs are prevalent and just how early these um, social interventions need to get to kids so that they can at least achieve on this track. They were saying, you know, there's a lot of money available if you're 18 years old um, and poor, but so many people don't make it to 18 because of the system and how it interacts with their, their social um, um, context. So it's, uh, this, is, this is absolutely huge, and we've got to go into it quite in a lot more detail. But the deck is still rigged against people who are poor, uh, minorities, uh, immigrants, and um, certain communities and certain um, cultures. So legally, opportunity is equal. There are student loans if you're if you're if you're poor. There are scholarship programs. There there are um, now in 2018. There there's there are special needs programs and things like that, which aren't going to be implemented by the next value. They don't exist within a purely um, a 1950s ambition based um, school system. However, it's still heavily heavily stacked against. Uh, or in favor of, of a, a middle-class, upper-middle-class upbringing. That's definitely a, a key point within this system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it favors the middle-class person and also favors a very selective subset of skills to do well. And we hear this as like a huge criticism of education that really, if you're good at reading, writing, speaking, and listening. That's more or less it. A bit of math certainly helps, but this, those soft skills of the more interpersonal side, that doesn't get marked very much, or if it does, not in a way that's weighted highly. I've never seen someone's interpersonal scores being used to determine whether or not they get into 
a university or some kind of program, these things that are not easily measurable, but yet hugely influential in the society aren't well, credit to the German the system. Credit to the German system that we have to mark under. We do have the social attitudes and working behavior that are on the report card and are given quite uh, a high status um, point there, but not for the same reason. Not because I, they're not really because of emotional uh, and social development. They are very much going back to say the self discipline model to say do these students adhere to the rules essentially on some level. Okay, so we've got to wrap it up in a couple of minutes, I think. But I just wanted to talk about a, a big social change that happened in terms to, that, that will affect schools over the next 30 to 50 years. At some time in the late 80s, beginning with Margaret Thatcher and, and Ronald Reagan was uh, a part of this, but especially in Britain, Thatcher went and explicitly said that she wanted to make schools a market with, that competed for students in which bad schools would lose pupils to the good schools, and this would raise the level of everybody. Eventually, fast forward 20 years later, the government began to introduce charter schools, which are schools that are partially funded by the state, but also don't have to particularly follow national curriculum, but are also um, can be funded by private um, charities and other uh, um, organizations. And I think this is going to, going forward, have a huge impact on the future of schooling because it's only just starting. So it is worth pointing out this ambition value that is at the center of the both the global capitalist market and the current school system is by no means on its way out. It is still increasing in its, um, in its influence and it's evolving in what it looks like and what it does. Yeah, and I think that's a critical part is that all of these values, they haven't peaked and become static. They are still evolving living organisms that still today are adapting to the environment around them and, and altering and changing. And I definitely think charter schools will play, a, which I would say largely come out of this ambition value. They're going to continue to have a huge impact even though we are also bringing online this next value of sensitivity, which will yeah. in many ways largely clash, I think, with the mindset of where these charter schools are coming from. The, the last point I wanted to just throw in is something that I had just come up with in the last couple of months, this idea of carnival games as okay. being one of the criticisms of the ambition-centered school. And we've already addressed how it's possible that what's happening in school isn't actually a great match for what's happening in the real world. Yeah. So even though we're saying a school education serves occupational development for when you leave school, when you enter the workforce, you're ready for a job. When you leave school, you're ready to be part of the citizenry. You're ready to be part of the public and you're ready to develop as an individual. You're ready to face what your life will throw at you. Even though we're saying that that's what we're doing, within the ambition system, in some ways, that mission of getting you ready for life gets hijacked by the importance of measuring what you're doing within school. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I think we've, I've likened it to the idea of carnival games that yeah. when you're at the carnival and you play the, you know, fill the clown's mouth with water and blow up a balloon or do the shooting at the shooting gallery, do the fishing pole game. And you get win a those. Tweety for your sweetie. <laughs> win a tweety Teddy, for your sweetie. For, Teddy for your steady. <laughs> I worked on the carnivals. Told you this before. Go on. Carry on. You get those tickets at the carnival for your achievement, for how well you did at the game. And those tickets are worth a lot within the confines yeah. of the carnival. And you can cash sure. them in and get the Teddy for your steady, the Tweety for your sweetie. All of those things, you can do really well within the carnival game. But as soon as you step foot off of those carnival grounds and try to use those coupons, those tokens, with a local shop or with somewhere else, they're not transferable. And I'm not saying the entire system is corrupt and there's no value for what's happening in school, but the rewards... The measurement and the rewards within the school system is much more like the carnival, that it doesn't guarantee that outside of the confines of this context, yeah, what you've developed in is transferable to the real world. Yeah. I've, 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 um, I think that's a pretty good metaphor. I think there's things that we can come back to. Um, and I know there are people that have tried to make um, in-school measurements that do apply, uh, there were uh, around uh, in um, occupations such as almost like point scoring, like little, um, when I was in the, the, the Boy Scouts, you get little badges, almost that kind of thing of getting badges that, that are applicable across society. And uh, it's an idea I guess we can come back to. And we got to wrap it up here, but um, yeah, we'll, I, we'll definitely come back to a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. So next um, next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll come to the idea of a school system that tries to be led or at least heavily incorporate the idea of sensitivity or um, paying attention to the emotional um, impact of school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also the beginnings of the deconstructing of school as we've known it. So yeah. this self-discipline-centric school, this ambition-centric school approach all of a sudden begins to get deconstructed sure. and taken apart within this next value of the sensitivity-centric yeah. school. Great. I mean, I hope we had a good stab at trying to define some of the pros and cons of the current system, but it is absolutely huge. It is, as we say, school as we know it in the mainstream. And it's just so hard for even us as teachers to know the water we're swimming in and for um, p- yeah, people who are not within the system to grasp that. So I hope we've had a, a pretty good uh, stab at that. And yeah, please um, uh, messages on Facebook or, and on the um other social media platforms, but especially that um, that Facebook Reinventing Education group that um, we'll hopefully put a link to somewhere on this um, in the blurb of this podcast. And uh, thanks for listening. We're on iTunes and Podbean right now, and so um, yeah, any feedback are very welcome. Yeah, because ultimately we're not doing this just for you and I to have this conversation. We're ultimately doing this to bring others 
into the conversation and hope to discuss education in a more meaningful way. And yeah, absolutely. ultimately what this comes back to for me is school is influenced by values. These values are attempting to explain what's important in life and what's worth doing, what's not. And we're only here for a very brief period of time and school has a massive influence in terms of how it impacts what we think we should be doing here. And yeah. I just want to bring the level of educational conversation to that level to acknowledge how much influence it has on how we think we should be living our lives. Noble aims, Rob McLeod, noble aims. Noble aims. And we've said this in closing. I think this episode was rambling all over the place. Mm. I had just the feeling of like, I don't even know where to enter into this to like capture the meat of this conversation because there's a million pieces. We're literally trying to just talk about life as it is in most of the world right now in an hour and how that yeah. reflects itself in school. This this episode itself probably turns into an entire 10 series, 10 series of episodes. The best just episode, to Rob, this is the only one you need to listen to. <laughs> Don't listen to any of others. This is the one. We nailed it. Time for tea. All right. So thanks, Rob. That was, a, that was great. Um, yeah. Goodbye, everybody. See you soon. 